I find this part of the conversation so frustrating because we keep hearing that team-based care is the solution. Yet like we practice in teams and we have been for years, right? And that's that's what's not recognized and supported is that we do it off our, our own backs, right? We keep hearing about being paid better in Alberta, but but the reality is, you know, compared to other provinces, we, we've had a, a very slow investment over time. The whole healthcare industry has changed dramatically in couple years. To chronic disease management and the preventative aspect of care. AI can now understand the key clinical concepts of what's being verbalized in healthcare. Welcome to Cherry Live. I'm Dr. Jordan Valrath, physician, entrepreneur, Chief Medical Officer for Cherry Health. We're talking about Canadian healthcare. Join us as we speak to innovators, industry leaders, and people working to drive the health system forward. All right, today we are joined by two incredible family physicians and healthcare advocates. Dr. Samantha Meyer is a rural generalist who spent the first four years of her career managing a busy full scope practice in Pincher Creek, Alberta. Since 2022, she's been working as a locum in sundry and was the president of the section of rural medicine at the Alberta Medical Association for the past three years. Samantha has fought to improve rural health care through numerous primary care tables and initiatives, including serving on the Executive Oversight Committee for MAPS. We'll chat about that a little bit uh, and co-authoring the proposal for a new payment model for family doctors here in Alberta. And Dr. John Hilner is a family doctor working in a team-based community clinic established in 1966 that provides primary care to about 20,000 people in St. Albert. He's been a vocal advocate for family doctors as the sole representative of the section of family medicine, executive at the MAPS Strategic Advisory Panel. John recently resigned as president of the section of family medicine at the AMA in October. So thanks for joining us. It should be a good conversation. We've got a lot to cover. I know there's been a lot of controversy, a lot of announcements coming out recently in the media, uh, and things here in healthcare are getting spicy. And I would love to get that insider scoop, just what you guys have been experiencing behind the scenes and what your thoughts are. Thanks, Jordan. It's great to be here. Um, yeah. I don't know how spicy they are, but I'd like to see a bit more spice maybe. I think, uh, you know, the recent announcements were um, disappointing from our standpoint, having been involved uh, heavily in MAPS and and having it tied, you know, to the agreement as really something that's going to change the game for family doctors. I don't think that anybody watching that press announcement would have, would have seen that as a sign of hope that things are really going to change for us. John, initial thoughts? Yeah, thanks for having us, Jordan. I you know, it, it's been, it's been tough. Um, you know, uh, MAPS itself was a very isolating process. Um, you know, it was, it was locked behind non-disclosure agreements and wrapped up at the end of March, um, six months of hard work and many hours. Uh, and then there was this, this pause, right, as a result of um, the political change in the election. Um, and, and finally, we're, we're hearing about, they're getting the report and, and starting to, to be able to see behind some of what, what happened at the process. Um, but it's, I agree with Sam, you know, this has been a long wait for not much. Um, and that's, that's not for lack of trying. Uh, you know, we've, as you mentioned, we've uh, put together proposals and ideas to try to uh, give government or equip government with, with what they need to help support family medicine in Alberta. Um, and, and that announcement just didn't capture that at all. But I mean, what else do you do, right, from the inside of medicine other than advocate and work with and then it you know, at some point it becomes out of our hands. And then at that point, the advocacy just needs to get louder. 
Yeah, yep. exactly. And I think that's a thank you for having a podcast like this where people can come and, and speak publicly, right? Because I think that's that's where we're at is we, we did a lot of the behind closed doors stuff. We're in all sorts of rooms and all sorts of initiatives through the AMA outside of it, right? Income equity, uh, PCN reform, uh, funding tables, MAPS was a huge project, as uh, John alluded to. You know, we, we do work with compensation in the AMA, and I guess we just realized that none of those things that were promised as, you know, going to change things tangibly for, for those on the ground are actually going to do that. And so, you know, it's, we actually, you know, I think during MAPS, we had the thought of, should we be writing an, a parallel report of things we actually need and putting that out, right? And, uh, you know, didn't know what kind of traction that would get. And, and uh, in the end, just decided to ask for what we needed with the, the LFP and the stabilization plan, like you mentioned. Yeah. And so I'd love to chat about the LFP as well. That seems, sounds like it's sort of the, you know, more realistic picture of what's needed and, you know, your work on that, I'm sure will actually be incredibly valuable. So we'll chat on all these. Well, let's start with the MAPS report then. So recently this just came out. Uh, I mean, the top line announcement there was the task force uh, in conjunction with the AMA in terms of primary care. What are your thoughts there? And let's break that down a little bit. Like, time delay and lip service or valuable group with lots of good things to add to the equation? I'll say I was confused. Uh, you know, I mean, MAPS, MAPS was itself a task force, right? Um, it was a task force in a few parts. Um, and I will say, you know, as part of the announcement, I was encouraged to hear what sound like tangible commitments coming out of the uh, Indigenous panel. Um, it sounds like there there is some meaningful change that potentially could happen to to help represent a population that that really do need support and where the health system is really not keeping up. Um, from from my perspective, uh, having been at the the strategic advisory panel, um, we've seen task forces come and go. We tried to draw on the task forces that have come in the past from like 2014, 2016. Um, and, and it just seems like the interval between task forces is getting shorter, but we're not seeing any action come as a result. And and so I would say, you know, while, while I hope that this time, um, you know, maybe we'll see a difference that's tangible, it's, it's hard to believe in it. Um, as, and it does seem like it's just going to delay what we really need. What's yeah. the intent of the new task force? Like there is, I, they have to have some clear vision for what they think this will do that would be differently. What, what was the intent on the, the side of pushing this out? I mean, the stated intent is to uh, go through the LFP model that, that John and I had put forward um, and a stabilization plan and then work on things like administrative burden that we know are plaguing, you know, all, all physicians, but particularly family physicians. And so, you know, whether it amounts to, to tangible outcomes is another story, right? Because my feeling is, is if you wanted to do that collaborative work, we could have, we, you know, we put something in front of the minister, we talked to the premier, um, you know, we've run the AMA board through this. We've been through the MAPS process. We can, you know, we've had conversations with the Minister of Health about the MAPS process too, um, and given feedback on that and to bureaucrats as well. And so what is the task force going to do differently 
than than not keeping those people out of out of the room or you know isolated behind NDAs in the first place. Like we could have we could have been there already, and so it does feel like it's a delay in in many respects, right? It kind of takes you out of the budget cycle for this year. Mm, okay, we were working really play... hard to yeah. to get this stuff in uh, in the summer, right? So that they had time to analyze it ahead of the budget process, which usually wraps up, you know, in November December. Mm -hmm. We're trying to play devil's advocate here. Is there any tangible, valid reason that a new task force would bring something to the table that couldn't have been accomplished already with all the minds and brains around the table? I'm trying, <laughs> Jordan. I mean, I mean, we've so, asked ourselves that a lot, yeah. right? Like, yeah. The fact is we're not even involved in this task force, right? As the people who put all of this work together and got in front of government, which is so to me, that looks like a step backwards in, in the first place. You're not starting with yeah. the people that, that know it through and through. So okay. yeah, I think right. that's, that's what I feel is, you know, it's, it's a lost ground in a way, right? Because you've, you've got people who have the context of, of going through discussions and, and maps included um, allied healthcare workers, patients and public, right, uh, experts in different areas. Um, and, and going through that process and having the opportunity to hear those different perspectives and try to incorporate them into something that's going to be meaningful and make a difference, which is what we did. Um, and then hearing that there's going to be another task force set up that essentially rolls things back uh, for people who weren't involved, right, uh, who, who have the context only of a 377-page report um that that doesn't you know doesn't necessarily capture the discussions and the thought processes that went into developing it um you you are inevitably going to slide back a bit it's like why why reinvent the wheel and redo the work when you've already got something in front of you that that you can use that's meaningful and people who understand where it came from so in terms of the things that they have put forward that are tangible then, so the announcement of the $57 million over three years to provide family doctors and nurse practitioners with supports to help manage costs. What are your thoughts on that item? Uh, I mean, the immediate thought is that that government saved $204 million according to, to the information that we had access to in twenty. 21 alone off the backs of family docs because of cuts, right? And, and largely because of virtual code inadequacy. Um, and that was at a time that we know that doctors were providing more services for that much less money. And so that's one year, 204 million versus 57 million that you're giving over three years and spread, you know, very thin too, right? It's 10,000, up to 10,000 per provider and mm -hmm. it comes it sounds like with strings attached right like with the requirement of more access and more attachment at a time that we've been telling government and anybody who will listen that the docs are stretched right they're tired they can't do more and so you've asked them to take less and and do more at the same time it's just yeah so it's a bit uh, demoralizing, I think, for for people. Um, it's disappointing because we we said, you know, it's almost better to announce nothing than to announce something piddly because that shows a lack of understanding of the problem and mm -hmm. the magnitude of it. And it's it's also not congruent at all with what we proposed. 
who was that to satisfy then? Is that like a big shiny number that looks good to a patient or member of the public when they see it in the newspaper, but anyone on the inside of the healthcare system sees it as a drop in the bucket? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've, I've had this experience with my patients coming in to see me who are, who are excited on my behalf, right? Saying, you know, it's, it's great to hear that there's a primary care announcement and that they're finally investing money in, in family docs and maybe this will keep you around, right? And so it's keep, working. keep your clinic running. This must be working. <laughs> and, and, you know, taking the time to explain that, that, you know, as somebody who, who has a full patient panel that I've built up over 12 years, my, my ability to take on people at this stage, especially with, with the increased challenges our patients are facing um you know the the complexity of their both their health and social situations have become much more more difficult um and so the care that we're providing is becoming more complicated the same panel now that i have that i had years ago it takes more time to look after because of the administrative burdens and the care burden um and so I don't have the ability to take on patients. Our, our clinic is getting many, many calls a day asking for uh, for patients to to be signed up, and we just don't have the space. And so, so knowing that none of the announced funds are going to support what we do, um, where and then hearing in conjunction with this that family medicine is in crisis and that we are the cornerstone or the foundation of the healthcare system, um, it's incongruent, and it it just it feels like gaslighting. It feels very difficult to to keep putting in uh, putting in the effort when you know the support's not coming. This show is brought to you by Cherry Health, Canada's medical network where healthcare practitioners connect. Physicians, pharmacists, chiropractors, dentists, and all other allied healthcare professionals can sign up for free and start checking out job opportunities from thousands of employers across Canada. We make it easy to advance your career with industry-specific job filters to help find your dream job or line up your next locum. You can also post jobs for free. That's right. If you're a clinic owner, manager, or a recruiting professional, you can recruit doctors and other healthcare providers for zero dollars. No catch. Hundreds of new health jobs posted every week. www.cherry.health to get started today. And I, I think it's hard, Jordan, because we know what we asked for too, right? We yeah, mm -hmm. and it, we said it to the premier and to the the minister of health. We asked for um, the tune of 250 million, right? 246 to be exact, and and that was based off of getting meaningful dollars to people who are currently looking after panel of patients in Alberta, um, because that's the longitudinal um, family medicine that we need to support that, you know, and you know this well, but, uh, you know, for the listeners, it's cost saving to the system to invest in that area. And it's also, um, it saves lives, right? It saves from a morbidity standpoint, mortality, keeps people healthy for longer. Um, it's what we're calling the foundation, but it's not what we're supporting. And so we had a way to to get money that actually tangibly does something, right? It would be to the tune of one staff person, uh, potentially per per doc, right? Um, and that's what it was based on, at least the the number. And uh, it would go exactly where we needed to go. And we can track that, right? So that's the accountability piece for government. And we said, you need, to, you need to make this kind of investment in order to retain what you have and not make the problem worse. And that's what we're trying to do with that funding while we get something like the LFP going. It doesn't sound like they're interested in going that way, I guess. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know. Oil's doing all right right now. You'd think that there would be like a little bit more uh, deep pockets on the side of the government, but still a lot of reluctance to just kind of go for the what's what's the lowest possible number. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I and think. Why would I mean, you? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Sam. I was just gonna say I don't understand that either. Like I don't understand the like why would you invest so little in in what is already such a big budget um item right because it matters to so many people so why not invest in the places that it's going to save you down the line well on the other hand then you hear some people make the argument that alberta physicians are one of the highest paid across the whole country what what's the actual reality of the situation so so i think from the perspective of government when you look at this you know every every year we have uh, physicians graduating. So in appearance and in terms of licensing, the number of doctors that are registered looks like it goes up every year. Um, we have an expensive system, right? And and it looks more expensive when you think about it as, you know, we're pouring money into family medicine and we're not seeing a difference. But, but I think the nuance of it is uh, looking at how many family doctors are actually providing that cradle to grave long-term relationship support with their patients. Um, and that number is decreasing every year because the, the incentive structures that exist currently push us into more of a, a selective or niche practice, right? To focus on, on certain aspects of care because that's maybe more manageable and much better supported often. And, and so better paid. Yeah, yeah, better paid, right? So, so from a government perspective, guilty you know, of that, this, this myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's there's not a congruence, right? And so I can understand some reluctance in putting money into the system, which is which is why with the the model that we built, we tried to be very intentional with how that funding was was going to be applied, that it would go to the places that matter. And mm -hmm. so I think you know we we hear often that not we're, that you don't matter, Jordan. No, yeah, totally. <laughs> but you know, you know what we're saying, though, like to go to the place that they say that they need to invest in but yes. haven't been yeah yeah and so so i think the the piece that you know we keep hearing about being paid better in alberta but but the reality is you know compared to other provinces um we, we've had a, a very slow investment over time um and we're now seeing in canada a context of of other provinces meaningfully investing like in in bc and nova scotia and manitoba in primary care and recognizing that when you do that as Sam mentioned, you, you hold the whole system up. What about the dollars and the plan for implementing nurse practitioners to have more of a role? You know, the team-based care seems to be like the common ground that everyone can get behind currently. What, what's your stance on that and how the MAPS uh, committee actually thought they would help implement this? I find this part of the conversation so frustrating because uh, we, we keep hearing that team-based care is the solution, uh, yet like we practice in teams and we have been for years, right? And that's, that's what's not recognized and supported is that we do it off our, our own backs, right? It comes out of our bottom line and that is what makes it less viable to be a comprehensive uh, longitudinal family physician compared to somebody who doesn't need a, a huge team to support their patient panel, right? Like, and especially in rural, right? Like if I'm in a merge, I need to be able to trust that my team is functioning and taking care of people while I'm away. Um, and, you know, I've worked in practices where we're, we're spending 50% of our, our clinic taking pay and overhead because it matters to have that team to look after the patients so that we can you do sure all you of it. 
the, for the clinic billing, right? And so some of yeah. that is offset by the time in the hospital because, again, our incentive structures align such that you get paid better to, to work in AHS or in the, the hospital system than you do outside of it, whereas that's where the majority of the care happens. So it's like it's not that we suddenly need teams and physicians need to figure out how to integrate them. It's like we actually just need support for the teams we have, for starters, right? And then also for interacting with them. Like it's you don't get paid to do the the leadership piece within your clinics, right? To do the training, to make sure things are running smoothly or to help people work to the top of their scope. And, and then when they do, it actually pulls money away from the physician earnings, just the way their system's set up. So it's, uh, you know, I find that very frustrating. And, and that really wasn't addressed at MAPS either um, or any of these other places, but... Go ahead, John. You look like you had stuff to say. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, I mean, for for my part, I'm I'm really proud of the team we have. So, yeah. you know, our our group of physicians, there's 13 of us, but we work alongside nurses. We have a, an in-house pharmacist. We have mental health nurses who um, who really do make sure that people are well looked after, right, and provide that that full support for for the people that come through our door. And the rest of our team, you know, we we have this this sense of the traditional quote unquote doctor receptionist who who greets you at the door and brings you in, but um their role is so much bigger, right? They've they often take on additional roles and try to help with um screening counseling and things like that. So um our our team has grown and evolved both in number and in scope ability over time. And mm -hmm. that's taken an investment of time and attention from from physicians and from the team members to do that because we value it and we think it matters, right? We see it as as something that we can provide to people that that will change change their lives, give them the opportunity to to live healthier. And so I'm proud of what we do. And so hearing that it's important um, as if it didn't exist before is challenging um, because it's something we've been doing for many years. Um, and, and knowing that it isn't fundamentally supported in our system, um, again, while, while being held up as an important future aspect, um, makes, it, makes it difficult to buy into that, that this is somehow going to solve the problem. Uh, you know, the investment needs to happen in family doctors and, and in care of patients at that level. And to like answer your question on the, the NP piece, right, and the focus on that, like it's, it's more about the way that they're doing it. Right. And it doesn't address what John or I just explained. Right. It, it's new structures. Right. It, it's siloing or fragmenting the system more instead of finding ways to better incorporate MPs into existing clinics to allow them to expand on what they already have and have a more integrated system. Like I work with an MP. I work with two physician assistants. Um, you know, and, and a handful of docs and a really great extended team. But, uh, you know, that you learn from each other. You learn from each other. You have that ability to, to consult in real time um, and to grow your skills to the top of your scope when you're physically located in the same space or you have those, you know, those tight networks of uh, collaboration, communication. The way that it's been done feels adversarial, right? Like setting it up as a competition of resources. Uh, we can do what you can do, or, you know, it's the, there's no difference in the training, which isn't true, right? But, but people working to their scope and working supported can do much more than, than they could alone. And that's true for physicians as well. And so I just think, you know, we're going about it the wrong way and it's kind of making it a, a butt heads and a confusing situation. 
and one that might actually be uh, not so great for nurse practitioners in the end either, right? Because nobody works alone. So. so maybe this is a great time to sort of pivot away from the maps and chat about how your clinics are structured. Because as I understand you, and you're both in that blended capitation model with a very comprehensive team-based care um, structure to it. The, I don't know who wants to start there, but what does that look like in practice when it's implemented successfully and usefully to the patient and the care team? So, I mean, I think, I think there, there's a few things with blended capitation that, that are fundamental to understand. So one is, one is that the model itself is still a physician payment model, right? So it doesn't include any support for administrative time. It doesn't support uh, teams. Um, in terms of extra financial supports, but it does give you some flexibility in how you did deliver your care, because essentially what blended capitation does is it says, you know, for, for the care of one person, you're going to be provided with X amount of dollars for the year, and you need to use that funding to support them in the way that you see fit. And so what it means for people coming into the clinic is that if they need to see the mental health nurse, they don't have to abide by the whites of the eyes rule of seeing a doctor first before they can access that service. They can come in and see that nurse. Um, they can come in and see the pharmacist to talk about their medication issues. Um, and that's all wrapped up in that same sort of bundle of funding for, for the patient. Um, but, but it does mean that you have, as a clinic, you take on more of the administrative responsibilities. The challenge with blended capitation is since 2017, the same problems have existed, right? And, and we're now looking at how to address those, those issues again. And we have a group working on that, but we've highlighted them already. Um, you know, we have a community of practice across the province where all the clinics communicate on a monthly basis and talk about innovations, ways that we've found to, to make the, the model work better, as well as challenges. And so those challenges are well known, um, but, but they're, again, like everything else in the system, it's very slow to address them. And so with, with blended capitation, you do get some opportunity, but you also take on a fair bit of liability. Um, and, and Sam, I'll let you speak to some of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the most challenging piece for, for people with blended cap is the external negation, right? So then uh, the idea is that you are able with the way you're funded to look after patients so well that they don't have to go anywhere else, right? And so if they go somewhere else, that funding's pulled from your clinic to pay, um, you know, the person that they do see. So walk-in clinic or um, even if they go to emerge in most cases, right, or in smaller smaller communities in particular. Um, if it's uh, you know being billed by a family doctor, and and so there's times where you've done even appropriate referrals, and because they're seeing a GP with a specialization um, on the other end of that referral, you lose huge amounts of money for your clinic, um, and it, it, it doesn't go below zero, right? But then essentially that that patient's funding has been reallocated inappropriately, and that's something that we know have has gone on over and over again uh, for years and and that's been brought to attention and nothing's been done about it. And so of course that really um, doesn't sell the model very well if you you don't know why you're getting money taken away and you can't really predict that. And no matter how well you do, right, or appropriately you look after a patient, it's gonna be happening anyway. And then there's no voice on the other side really like listening to you and dealing with the problem. Um, while they're saying that they want to support ARPs, right? So blended, blended models of payment 
are fantastic, right? I think we know from a lot of global research that it's the preferred method of combining kind of efficiency and um, the ability to deliver care in different ways, right? And have that predictability of funding for the government side and the provider side. Um, but, you know, the blended capitation model as it's been implemented here has problems. And we actually have learned from those in the way that we design the LFP, right? We took those as, as lessons learned and how can we make it better and, and therefore also make it more accessible to, to more family physicians to join because it's been very slow, right, to, to onboard to BCM. Yeah, and I think, I think to expand on that, um, the LFP model comes largely or in, in large part from some of the work that's been done in BC yeah. to simplify blended payment models, right? To say, you know, we, we recognize that a component of your, the, the care you're providing to patients is time-based, another component is service-based, and we're going to blend those two things together in a way that's easy to access and, and that captures the, the full amount of, of time that you're spending to look after people, which is kind of what blended capitation at its heart is trying to do in a very complicated way, right? Mm -hmm. From the outside, it's, it's kind of a mystery. And from the inside, there's still enough of a black box that a lot of the time you're not really sure how, how things are being processed for your support. And how does that integrate with that team-based care model? Like I saw one physician on one of the Facebook groups, uh, his phrasing was, I don't need to be babysitting a pharmacist or a nurse. Uh, he just wants to be you know, remunerated appropriately for everything he's doing and be more supported in his own work. How do you actually set up that team-based care model? And how does that fit in with that blended capitation payment structure? Go Sam, ahead. You You've done this better okay. than than Fair anyone enough. that I know. So, <laughs> so, so um, it it does take a lot of um, willingness to to go through a change, right? And and our our clinic went through this to to try and keep what we had actually. So we already had um, integrated mental health nurses. We had integrated pharmacists, right? That didn't change under blended capitation. What did change was was our ability to allow them to grow in their roles. And so, um, you know, what we recognize is that if somebody comes into our clinic and, and there's somebody else there, who's more able to look after the problem that they're coming with, um, you know, from a mental health perspective, they might need the, the attention and time screening of a mental health nurse and the supports that they can connect them to in the communities. And our mental health nurses are going to do a much better job at that than I would. Um, and so, the, they can access that service right away instead of having to wait for an appointment with me, which is taking longer to get as our system demands increase, um, and and then wait again to to see the person that they need to see. And so I think from an efficiency point of view, it it can be really helpful. There there's a cost to that though, right? And and that's the piece that still hasn't changed in blended capitation. So although you are supported or funded better uh, in many ways, the you lose out on some of the things that you otherwise would be paid for, um, as Sam said. And and in many ways it feels like you are you are the the one town with a sheriff in the Wild West, right? Like you have responsibilities, <laughs> you have accountabilities, um, but those don't exist elsewhere. And and as a result you end up um, essentially paying the cost for for the system even when you're trying to use it effectively. So the two key pieces there, like it's direct to the allied health provider that saves time and system inefficiency from you being the gatekeeper. And then what is the actual family physician's role 
at that point? You know, they see them. Are you now the consultant role if they need you to weigh in on something? But like you were saying, you know, like if they see the the mental health nurse who's going to do a better job than, you know, arguably the doctor would because they've been trained to do that stuff for years versus months. Uh, what is that fallback or that liability piece that you're accepting? Yeah. So, so I think, I mean, the, the key to that is communication, right? So our, our mental health nurses will, will communicate uh, what they discuss with the patient to let us know what the plan is. So we, we're still responsible and accountable to care for that patient uh, medical legally. Um, and if there's a, if there's a component that falls into our side, so where, you know, we're prescribing medications and supervising um, the, the treatment and care of the patient, then, then they will let us know that, that this is somebody who they feel would benefit from that or might. And, and then we have that discussion. Um, and so in that way, the, the person who's being cared for has, has both sides, right? Their, their community supports are set up by the mental health nurse. Um, they have the self-care and, and uh, as our nurses call it, the behavioral health side of things where they can, they're equipped to help themselves. Um, and then the, our physician side of it is if there's a medication component or additional treatment that they need to access in the system, uh, referrals or otherwise, or, or treatment in-house, um, then we take care of that piece. So it really, I mean, th that is the, the nature of the team, right? It's, it's literally a, a whole group of people looking after you uh, for all of your needs. What about on the pharmacist side of things? How much can they effectively do without needing to, you know, have the doctor as a gateway or, a, you know, just a roadblock to them actually getting that higher level of care from the specialist in that area? I, I think a lot of it is actually the stuff that you, you don't really see otherwise, right? Or that you wouldn't get the communication on. Like the pharmacist's great for doing like med reconciliations or doing all that counseling around the medications that people are using or picking up on things that like when the patient's coming in to see them, they might ask a question that triggers a pharmacist to say, oh, this is something you need to talk to your doctor about. But then if they're in communication with the doctor, right, and, and you've set up those pathways or you're charting the same system, you can do that in real time. So it's not so much like, again, the, the sort of overall conversation around incorporating pharmacists more in the system in Alberta has again been a siloed thing, right? Pharmacy led clinics um, and like expanded prescribing and, and whatnot. And, and like, that's not necessarily, that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but if it's fragmenting the system more, it is. So these mm -hmm. integrated pharmacists are like a huge benefit for, for the team, right? Cause they, they do have extremely high knowledge of medications that we don't get the same training in. And so they're a useful resource in that respect, but they also pick up on a lot of things that, that patients just say offhand or whatever. And then they can say, Oh, you need to go right now and talk, or I'm just going to pick up the phone and, and call your doctor. It's those connection pieces. I think that, that majority of the systems missing and blended cap does help you to create more of. Um, but all these other fragmented solutions really don't. It gets us further from the goal. Yeah, I think I think where we see the beauty in that, especially is, you know, as as you know, Jordan, our our hospital system is heavily burdened as well, right? And and our emergency system. And so when 
when our, our patients show up in the emergency or they get admitted to hospital and they get discharged and there's been changes to their medications and changes to their care, um, we have systems set up in our clinic that monitor for that. And so when they're, when they're discharged, our nurses will reach out to the patient and make sure they're doing okay and that they have the supports in their home and that if they need an appointment with the doctor that that gets set up. And our pharmacists will reach out to them and find out if they have questions about their medications and we'll go through, um, you know, how, how their medications are prescribed, make sure they have enough to get them through to the doctor's appointment if they're waiting for it. And so there's that, that safety net, right? And, and you, you kind of, you're not just, you know, dropped from the hospital or discharged from the hospital into the community and, and waiting or, or feeling unsupported. You've got a, a support system. And I think, you know, when, when we look at Alberta and the fact that there's 80,000 plus Sorry, 800,000 plus patients who don't have family doctors, who don't have a connection to, to any form of that support. Um, you know, that, that's the piece that's missing. Um, and that's, again, what we're trying, to, we're trying to say needs to be supported and, and, and paid for in the system because it, it saves more than money. It saves lives. And so that blended cap model, it does allow you to have that, you know, sort of leadership and administerial role while still not impacting the bottom line, pulling other team members in. Is that correct? Well, I mean, yes and no, because you're still not getting, like, you're providing the service, but, like, you still don't get any extra for it, and you're still paying for the staff in many cases, mm -hmm. most cases, right? And so that's why I think John was alluding to it's still not a team-based model it's a physician remuneration model and then you're just able to do some more with it but with that comes a huge administrative burden to figure all the complex pieces out which is why the lfp is so nice and and we kind of saw what bc was doing we're like oh we we need to customize that to alberta um and because in many ways we're better set up to incorporate it here like we we have a lot of advancements in terms of tracking like who patients are attached to and things like that mm -hmm. that makes it easy to implement something like this um certainly much more simply than than expanding bcm now you mentioned you're paying a 50 percent overhead at your clinic is that correct that sounds so so foreign in, <laughs> so that was in in pincher um we did you know the clinic on clinic billings it was it was that much we had a huge team right and uh, and again, it was just recognizing the importance of that for patients. And so we were doing that on fee for service. Um, and so blended cap helped buffer that a bit, uh, because we made a transition there too. Um, but it was still like, it's still nowhere near what you can make doing so much less work, right? Um, less hours, less mental or cognitive load taking you know taking on the burden of 24 7 responsibility for a patient panel like you can go work a shift right and as a hospitalist or you know be a, a screener for a surgeon's clinic or something like that and then just go home at the end of the day and if as long as you keep remunerating those types of care more than than this longitudinal piece you're going to get people moving into that type of care instead of the longitudinal mm -hmm. piece. And so when Minister LaGrange says in question period in the legislature, you know, we actually have, uh, whatever she said, a hundred and some new docs coming in, right? Family doctors, like sh she knows, as we do, because we've had this conversation, that you don't, you can't say that those are going into longitudinal family medicine, right? And so can't say that it's going to help get anybody a family doctor 
um, it's, you know, it's a numbers game. And I think we just really need to be honest about what is and isn't supported and get down to doing something about it. And so even at that 50% price tag, though, I can imagine a lot of doctors seeing that on the job description and then just getting sticker shock and walking away immediately. Yeah. But they should not be dissuaded by that because the benefits of the team-based model and all that that support comes with actually was a like net improvement in just your mental health and your work-life balance. Is that what I was hearing? Well, I mean, until it was systematically dismantled in the past few years, right? I think that's that's part of it is that we've been fighting a like we we had COVID to go through a pandemic, but more importantly, we had cuts at the same time and and just an ongoing lack of support and as John alluded to, no real responsiveness to the problems with BCM as well. And so, um, you know, as you can do the right thing on the the goodwill, I guess right aspect like in job satisfaction knowing that you're doing a good job for patients you're doing important work um but uh you know as my colleague had as aisman um who was the, the president of the section of rural medicine before me now in bc um <laughs> said you know what the goodwill's gone um and i think that's where family physicians are at and you can't rely on that anymore nobody's going to pay a 50 percent overhead when they can go and, and work less hours, spend more time with their family, uh, and take home more in the end. So yeah, I, I know you're focused on the 50% because it's crazy, right? It sounds crazy, that um, sounds but wild. that's what people do. People do what they, what they need to do to look after patients. Like you, that's why people go into family medicine. And so it's pretty sad. Like we, we got so many responses. Um, we did a reach out survey in the spring and the answers were heartbreaking. Just people talking about why they can't do it anymore uh, or why they've already moved out of family medicine or why they plan to. Um, and it's like, it's alarming how many, it was 53% of the people who responded were going to decrease access in some way in the next three years substantially. So moving provinces, retiring, quitting medicine because uh, they don't and they want to find a different career right because they don't feel valued or you know commonly going into niche practice um but the the stories were the heartbreaking things there were people like like facing bankruptcy or stuck in leases and remortgaging their homes to to keep it going and or like being delivering uh or sorry like uh being immediately uh post-delivery and going back to to work two weeks later with a newborn like it's just because nobody's there to cover it like it's a pretty awful situation but like there's a lot of optimism i think in in what we could do with something like bc's model which is why we you know we keep trying to push that because it it really is i think the solution to a lot of the issues we're seeing both at, at all these tables that we're at right where the where the work isn't happening and the advancements aren't coming and just like on the ground for hope, right? Uh, that this is going to be something that we can draw new grads into, or or we can fill our family med spots in CARMS matches and keep looking after Albertans. So, John, you got a burning thought there. Oh no, I I think Sam hit it hit it on the head with the the trainees as well, right? Like so so I mean, you know, we're we have medical students and residents that that come and work with us in our clinics and and i mean they're not oblivious to to 
the conditions we're working in, right? And medical students are trying to make their decisions for their careers. Medical residents in family medicine are are trying to decide what what kind of a family doctor they want to be. And and so when you see uh, you know the clinics like Sam was mentioning in Pincher Creek, and you see this the clinic that that um, really does exemplify the team model and and is trying to deliver that wraparound care for their patients in a situation where that becomes unsustainable, right? Um, the the natural inclination is going to be to say, you know, I'm getting out of this. I need I need a job that's going to have some security and stability, and and I don't see myself in that in that position. And and that's why stabilizing is the first step, right? Like the the first piece is to make sure that you can keep what you have, um, and make it something that's viable, so that the people that are graduating, that are coming out, and those who've put their life into it, can see themselves continuing to do it or starting. This show is brought to you by Cherry Health, Canada's medical network where healthcare practitioners connect. Physicians, pharmacists, dentists, chiropractors, and all other allied healthcare professionals can sign up for free and start checking out job opportunities from thousands of employers across Canada. We make it easy to advance your career with industry-specific job filters to help find your dream job or line up your next locum. You can also post jobs for free. That's right, if you're a clinic owner, manager, or a recruiting professional, you can recruit physicians and other healthcare providers for free. There's no catch. Zero dollars, hundreds of new health jobs posted every week. www.cherry.health to get started today. And we've seen the downstream impacts of just the situation on the, you know, CARMS program and the unprecedented number of family medicine spots that were open a couple months ago, right? And so dude, we're seeing that. Well, so mm -hmm. then you guys have been working on solutionary things to these issues then. So why don't we chat about the LFP that you put together and the stabilization plans? Uh, what is needed? What was what? Why don't we start with what was the LFP? What was the goal and the intent? So I, I think you know I, I was um, reflecting on on what it is that keeps us in family medicine, and and really it's you know the right now time and attention are are really scarce resources, and and that's what we need to support family doctors doing. That is the goodwill in family medicine. And so the LFP was a way to try and recognize that and and support it in um, in cradle to grave care and and long term longitudinal care for patients. And so the the model had a few parts to it. It was you know number one, um, make sure that you recognize the time doctors spend in caring for their patients, both face to face directly and increasingly on the administrative side. And then, and then number two, start to recognize the, the increasing complexity and the need to fund teams. And so we'd broken it down into a few components that, that would do that um, in a meaningful way. Yeah, and so what that looks like in practice is that there's an hourly rate, a base rate that you, that you get, um, whether you're seeing patients or providing the indirect care administrative stuff that goes along with that. So, you know, as you know, the, the charting stuff isn't, or all the referrals and the management of your inbox, right? All the results and investigations and consult letters that are coming, um, you know, never ending cycle that often people are sitting at home at, you know, midnight or on the weekends doing. That's the stuff that the public or the patients don't see. Like, most of that is unremunerated. And so it's up to like 30% of what a family physician does is unremunerated. 
Um, and we wonder why it's hard to get people into the job, right? And then you pay 50% overhead on top of that. No, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to do it as, as best you can, right? Um, and so it's, it's being able to get paid an hourly rate for those things. And then there's an encounter rate on top of that to recognize uh, the service-based component. Because sometimes with salary, we see, you know, not as much um, not as much service being provided. That's just a, you know, a known fact in the literature and that's does not just medicine, but, and so it's a blend of those two things. And then, yeah, as John said, there's a, an aspect like Manitoba's done a fantastic job of breaking down panel complexity. So we, we did a, borrow a lot of that, right. And that sets you up for actually knowing, um, you know, if you have, a a lot of people with depression, anxiety, which is very common these days, especially after, after COVID and isolation and things like that, you know, um, we, you can get money for the patients that you're looking after for those reasons appropriately. And then you know that you could fund, you know, more mental health with uh, supports for that, right? Or you are more appropriately compensated for all the extra time it takes to talk through the problems that they're facing. So that's that complexity piece. And it really is exactly based on a transparent structure for for the problems that your panel has. And so that allows you, you know, if you have a smaller panel, but it's very complex, it allows you to uh, more appropriately be remunerated for that. So you're not just, you know, like you're, I hate to use the word cherry picking, but that is something that the government talks about too, right? Cherry picking mm -hmm. easy patients. Not that any patient is easy, especially these days, right? More complex, but there's a tendency like what what is the incentive to take on somebody who really needs the care? And those are the people who really need the care to keep them out of the hospital system. And then the team-based stuff, right? Like there's a component of it that that just recognizes um, that you may want to like for typically now like PCN funding, right? Um, there's attachment uh, based funding that goes to the PCN for your panel, right? That you're looking after. Some of that money might come back to your clinic for some team supports, right? Or, but it, uh, often they're not co-located, right? It's just not as efficient as it could be. And it doesn't support necessarily exactly what your clinic population, your panel needs. And so we were proposing to, to take some of that funding and have it be more a commission service, right? So if you can get the services you need from your PCN, then you just keep allocating it there. And if not, then you use it towards the team that you do need. And so it's all like, it's all together, something that would improve um, your ability to sort of track where your investment is going, because this is obviously only a longitudinal family practice that this would go to. Um, or like you can incorporate MPs in it too. We had a consideration for that or others down the line, but um, it allows you to track that the money that you're putting in is getting the outcomes that you're looking for in a way that doesn't add to the administrative burden for physicians tracking it themselves. It becomes automated. So it's actually pretty neat in that sense too. Well, it makes total sense, right? Like the incentives need to line up with where the demand is and what we actually see as being high and highly valuable and what's necessary, right? And so if yeah. it's you know that blended model where you're at, you know accounting for the administrative time, it sounds very much like what BC's changes were recently, where they're actually paying doctors for those administrative hours mm -hmm. and the charting and sending consults and dealing with all the labs and inboxes. 
um, which makes total sense, right? Otherwise, you will see people drifting off to the, you know, as as you say, the cherry picking side of things, right? It's like one patient, one visit. Let's go set up a walk-in clinic next to a university where everybody's disproportionately healthy and young, right? So you, you got to make the actual structure behind the scenes align with what's needed in the system. Yeah. And the other cool thing from your perspective, Jordan, I think is like from the locum side of things, like BC, um, BC incorporates locums into their model by allowing them to bill under the, the LFP clinic. And because they're so much better supported then, right, because they're, they're able to build hourly rate and whatnot, like you can offer competitive overhead arrangements, I think, with locums. Like I foresee this, like looking at Cherry Health, you just have a filter, right, to like which clinics are LFP clinics, right, and allow people to preferentially choose those places where they're probably going to have better team supports and stuff and wraparound services too. It makes your job easier as a locum. Like there's lots. And then, of course, the team and the panel aspects wouldn't be uh, applicable to the locum like that's the the benefit of having the clinic structure but i think you'd be able to attract locum so much easier too on this so it's like there's so many wins to it when it really was designed with government in mind too like knowing their budget restrictions and what they need to show and that there's you know strings attached for the federal funds so like all those pieces were incorporated to try to bring something that made a lot of sense was evidence-based and it's just like really sad to see, you know, uh, the, what comes out for announcement, not really matching the, the excitement in the room that we were showing with this. So, Well, and so I guess circling back to the map side of things and the announcements that are actually coming out, uh, the final report, it sounds like it was a bit different than what was actually discussed with the team and what was actually put forward by everyone working on it. So I think, you know, the, it's, it's a challenge, right? Cause it's, it is a very big report. And when you have, when you have that bigger report, it's, um, it's difficult to really focus in on, on what the discussions were at the table. Right. Um, and, and so I think, you know, for, for people looking at this and saying, well, what, what is the take home? Um, the, my recommendation to physicians out there is to to read through at least the first two recommendations and figure out what this like is likely to mean for your practice and your practice viability. I think the the maps report in the way that it was you know it was released and came out it it took a long time to come out. Um, the context has changed, um, you know, from from maps. Uh, we've seen developments in other provinces like BC, like Manitoba, where where family medicine is is we're flipping the system and making family medicine the priority. Um, and and to me, that context matters. Uh, you know, we need to start thinking in Alberta about how we keep attracting people to our province and keep making family medicine attractive in our province. And so the, the report itself, I think is, you know, it's in many ways, a general framework. There are some things as you've seen, I'm sure in there around uh, governance structures that, that aren't really clear in many ways. Um, but, but at the end of the day, the, the key is that without a commitment to stabilize what we have, um, and and now looking at another task force to go and do the same kind of thing, um, it, it kind of calls into question what the what the purpose of that report is. How many people worked on the maps reports? How many people actually worked on the LFP? How big are the teams that they're actually putting on these projects? <laughs> I mean, the LFP was us. You're talking to we had you know the the 
sort of like endorsement support or whatever from a couple of senior AMA staff, right? Um, so that we could get it to the the board level and and have them. But we did all the work, right? As a cumulative, I think we said labor of love um, that puts all the information that we have from various tables and takes you know what's happening nationally and puts it in one place. And it's because it wasn't happening anywhere else. Like nobody was doing this work, despite us saying, like, look at BC, look at BC. Like we need to be doing something like this or we're gonna continue to bleed that way. And that's just like, so we took initiative and did that. So it wasn't like you're looking at the team there. Um, but but it was partially because we knew it wasn't coming from maps, right? Like we kind of touched on before or any of these other other areas in fact like the pcn side or anything sort of related to that like just everything halted in this interim with with maps it's like oh we need to wait for direction for maps and so there was not an urgency on any of that side um which is government structures right um and so they know that they have something coming out and they're saying hold up don't do any work and wait for that to come out first and then we'll align with maps which is as John mentioned, huge, and it gets bigger every time we see it. So like it changed the last 24 hours between, um, you know, like what the panel saw and, and, and had talked about, and then what was going to be going forward to the then minister copying. Um, and there were some substantial changes made then, and they weren't discussed. And then I think since we saw it last time, it's 100 pages more or something, um, you know, it's hard to tell. It's all jumbled whether there's a, a ton of changes to the structure, the components of it. But it just, I mean, I think it, uh, if anything, it just speaks to kind of the lack of trust in the process that we assume that there has been. <laughs> it's just, it wasn't really reflective from our perspective of the need that we were seeing and and didn't really feel heard and in fact there was dissent at maps that wasn't really allowed to happen and i think um from my perspective those are the kind of conversations that you need to have right like if you're if you have physician leaders that are speaking on behalf of like half the membership um of or half the physicians in the province right because we hear so many stories from them right? And what reality is like for them. And, and you're not taking that at face value. And in fact, um, you know, you're saying, well, we don't, we don't actually want your dissent. <laughs> this needs to be a pretty consensus package. Um, that's like, it's been hard to kind of sit and live with that, knowing that it wasn't even uh, treated with that respect, I think that, that it deserves, because it is the voice of, of so many. So there was unilaterally an additional 100 pages just thrown into the report at the last minute without anybody really seeing or signing off on it. So, I mean, it, it is bigger than we last saw it. Some of that is is formatting in white space, right? Um, mm -hmm. There, I mean, there are content changes from from when the report was, was developed. Um, and so, I mean, again, it, it comes down to, you know, like, is it is it meaningful or is it a distraction right so so and and what do we take from the report that's that's going to move forward so releasing the maps report is one thing right putting it out publicly showing or talking about which parts of the report you plan to implement 
and when is the next. Um, and I think that's like, to me, that's the piece is it's kind of, you know, as a government, what is your priority, right? Do you, do you try to implement structures that allow you more uh, ability to control the healthcare system? Meanwhile, ignoring the components of that system that make it work and allowing them to degrade further and not be there anymore? Or do you meaningfully commit to a sustainable healthcare system by supporting the practices that you currently have? And, and the announcement and the way that it's rolled out suggests that the, the latter is not the priority, right? That the supports that have been announced are not meaningful and won't sustain what we have. And so, you know, now we need to wait and see, um, you know, where where support is going to be put. And in that process, we're going to lose a lot of the care, I think, that we already have, um, which is which is devastating when you're starting at the point where so many people are already without it. And then how do you deal with dissent on, you know, a committee like this? Like you'd think that that's a good thing, right? You want to be leading and not just managing and dictating what's going on, but rather actually putting all the minds together to collectively problem solve. But then it sounds like that sort of gets stifled. It sounds somewhat uh, reminiscent of, you know, Dr. Hinshaw dealing with the government and getting stuck in the middle on the the whole COVID pandemic management. And then kind of in the middle being the scapegoat and also the like front person uh, explaining things as per the government view, as per the actual picture in healthcare. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I think I think the thing is too, you know, when when maps was designed, the intention as it was stated was to have people who had experience in the healthcare system from a variety of different backgrounds who were relative experts in their area um come together and and come up with something that would would lead us in the right direction. And and experts disagree, right? I think, you know, we we have different contexts and different backgrounds and and we come with different information. Um, and, and disagreement is productive, right? Uh, you can, you can use disagreement to come up with new solutions, um, or you can ignore it and, and think, you know, you ignore it at your peril, right? Like a lot of, if you want to keep things going in the same direction, pretend to listen to people. Um, and, and you're still going to have the same path at the end of the day that you started on. Um, and I think that's, that's where you're right, Jordan. I think that's where we, we often don't see a match between what we are trying to bring forward, which ultimately for the two of us, you know, for Sam is the voice of the members she represented in, in, up until recently in the section of rural medicine. And for me is the voice of the, the family doctors uh, in primarily urban centers, but across the province, um, because uh, my role as president when I was in it was also to represent rural physicians in family mm-hmm. medicine. And so, so we're bringing that voice forward and it's not just one person, you know, one person's opinion. It's, it's somebody who's had experience in the system, but also has uh, a lot of the information from others. And, and when we weren't sure, we asked, right? Like when we weren't really sure if, if maybe we were missing the boat and maybe there was something that, that uh, was meaningful either in what had been announced at the time or what was potentially coming, we asked our members and the resounding message was, no, it's not enough. And that's the message that we brought forward is it's not enough and it's still not enough. And so up until, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just, I just wanted to highlight that there's been an unwillingness to hear that, right? Like not just at the maps table, but to believe it outside of that, like within our own representative organization with other primary care groups and from government. 
Um, and I don't think a report that, that doesn't address the things that we were trying to raise, right, the reality that we're facing now, um, does a lot of uh, good, right, in, in that discussion, or it doesn't help, right, to have that, to be able to point to and be like, well, look, all these experts said, <laughs> right, or endorse this when, when you haven't incorporated, like, to answer your question, how do you handle dissent? I think you talk about it, right? You put, like, that there was was not consensus. That's how, like, you know, the National Academy of Science or other places would, would do it. They would put, you know, recommendations, and then they'd say there wasn't consensus for these reasons. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, you know, it doesn't detract, I don't think, from from your report at all. I think it actually adds to it. It shows that you thoughtfully... Um, you know, work through the problems and you couldn't reach consensus, but you think that this is the direction you need to go still. But but when it's not um, mentioned at all, I think that raises red flags, right? Is it, did you actually want to listen or did you just want to push your stuff through? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, they have that agenda and then anybody who disagrees with it, dude, squash it with an NDA, right? Like, okay, we're going to have a unified front here and everyone agrees on exactly what's been published. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, John, you were up until just very recently the um, you know president of the section of family medicine at the AMA. Can I ask why'd you quit? Yeah, I mean, it it was a difficult decision. Um, I think you know the um, when I when you take something on, you, you kind of have to ask yourself: Is this meaningful? Like, does it matter? And and it certainly does. I mean, that that hasn't changed. It obviously, I'm still talking about it, so it, it's still meaningful to support family doctors. And and I would, you know, it is my hope that that my family doctor colleagues, yourself and Sam, and everyone else across the province, can succeed at what they're trying to do. But but the second part to that is: Is it manageable? Like, can you actually can you actually achieve the thing you're trying to? Um, and, and, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, Jordan, it became apparent that, that really within the organization that wasn't likely or possible. Um, you know, there, there were a number of, we, we obviously tried a number of different things. Um, part of that was the isolation of the NDAs and not actually being able to, uh, to represent people. And, and uh, I don't know if you know, but up until recently, those NDAs actually prevented the, the board of the AMA from knowing information about maps until a few days before the announcement, right? So it makes it very difficult to to provide input and advice and to lead when when you're hampered by things like that. Um, and then and then when you're you're trying often to justify the decisions that you're making based on the information that you have as somebody who sits at all of the different places that that Sam has mentioned, you know, at maps and talking about income equity, which has been an issue in balancing the the relative supports and fees for for sections across our profession for many, many years, um, for many physicians who are close to retirement for the full duration of their practice, right? Um, and and recognizing each time that that these things aren't going to address what we need um eventually you get to the point where you kind of have to say well well if i can't make a difference here where can i um and and so i've chosen to to leave the ama and to go back to uh, my clinic team where we're like i said i'm proud of what we do and and i've got colleagues who I've been drawing on the goodwill of to to be able to represent them at the AMA who, um, you know, and patients as well, who've been waiting for longer for appointments to see me as I as I take on these other responsibilities. Um, and and really, at the end of the day, that's where I think that that the difference can be made is is at 
the the level of the community and the clinics that that need to support the people that we care for. I mean, that sounds ridiculous that, you know, the people that are leading the entire organization and the province and the AMA are not even privy to much of this information and the work that's been done because of these NDAs. Like, is, is this a commonplace thing in healthcare? Like, is the entire system just rife with sort of this you know, lack of transparency and stifling dissent? Is that anything you've seen elsewhere or heard elsewhere? <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, at, I at the... laugh, but I, yes, the answer <laughs> yeah. is yes. Yeah. I, I think, it's I mean, if you hard. think about, about how you feel, right, as a, as a, as a doctor practicing in, in the community, right. And you're, you're waiting and you're, you keep saying, you know, this is what I need. This is where, you know, like I, I need these supports and you're not seeing them. There's something that's not connecting. Right. And, and when the messaging is, you know, we have a much more positive relationship with, with government or, you know, things are great. We've got an agreement that's going to solve the problem. We've got a maps process that's going to solve the problem. We're, you know, tackling income equity. We're going to see that balanced out. And, and the, the meaningful change isn't happening, right? Something's missing, right? There, there's something that, that you're not seeing. And, and yes, I do think that that's a, a big part of it is, you know, if we, if we had more transparency, then, then at least we could decide whether, whether this was the way we wanted to be supported. And I mean, I just like, I can't not say that we, like we've personally been excluded from tables for raising dissenting opinions that are in line with our members feedback, right? Just because they're hard things to hear, they're, you know, uh, like they're meant as constructive criticism, you don't go through the the time and energy to to give that feedback, or to raise those things if it if you don't care about the resolution of them. And so yeah, we've seen that even with our own primary care groups, other leaders, right, is that don't talk about XYZ, um, you know, and even though it's something that impacts our members hugely, and and if you won't stop talking about it, then then you're not allowed at our table. And and so that's just it does nothing but to harm our own representation um, as family docs. And and unfortunately, like that, I think that's part of it, right? Is that like the the top leadership they made too, like hasn't has upheld those sorts of things. Um, and part of it is I think that like it's systems. It's not individuals. It's how we've set up our systems, but they're not serving our people. And it's not true representation. So there's a lot of work that that we need to do on transparency. But right now, given the you know the magnitude of the situation and what needs to be done, I think the the best thing to do is the kind of stuff that you're doing, Jordan, is like bringing the voice out to the public so that people have an idea of what they need to advocate for for themselves, right? Like to their local areas, communities, groups, MLAs, um, you know, some of the most meaningful action that I've been part of, like back in Pincher Creek was like a whole community wraparound of their healthcare services, you know, back in the 2020 job action for rural, right? It was like our community stood behind us because they understood how much it mattered and they could see down the line and know what this was going to mean for their community. And so they stood up with us and that was so meaningful. So I think, but that took a lot of time and effort, right? Talking to MLAs and to mayors and reeves and going around and, and spending time with town council and, and it's energy that like, if you're not, if you're spending it at your represent, representative organization and you don't see it happening there, despite like the, the things that we've been privileged to be a part of, like maps and, and all of these high level tables and talking to the premier and the, the minister directly, then you got to go back to, to what has worked and where you can make a difference. And you can't do that in isolation. You need to bring your team with you. 
and it's the team that trusts you and and has the same like shared common goal that's gonna gonna take you further so i think that's part of it too just keeping the dialogue running you know advocating for transparency anything else the, the doctors or the public in general should be trying to look for or steer towards to keep the system honest and moving in the right direction yeah i think i think going back to you know we we, we do a lot in in family medicine to um look after and care for our patients, but also protect them from the cracks in the system, right? Like we, we try, try our best to, uh, you know, especially if you have a family doctor who's known you for a long time, you know, we're often on the phone trying to set up specialist appointments where we know there's a longer wait time than that patient probably needs to get their, their issue dealt with because it is a crisis, right? It's something that needs to be dealt with more urgently. Um, and so we put in that extra time to do it. And I think that's, that's where, you know, we, we, probably need to start saying no to some of the things that are preventing us from from recognizing the problems in the system or really addressing them meaningfully and and if you know our our doctors and our patients if if they value this kind of care if they value having a family doctor and being able to say my family doctor is so and so um then they need to they need to know that there's a problem and then go and speak about it with their MLAs, um, go speak about it with their, their municipal leaders and say, you know, I value what I have now and I don't want to lose it. And, and we need to do what we can to, to sustain it um, so that that message keeps carrying, carrying up and, and that no matter where they turn, our elected members of government are hearing the same thing, that, that the support and sustainability of, of family medicine is important. And I, I also think there needs to just, in general, be more transparency about data from government side, right? Like some of these budget announcements, despite being intimately involved in the, in the you know, projects or initiatives they're talking about, we can actually trace where the dollars are going. And so we don't know if they're going to be meaningful. Um, you know, there's been re-announcements of we kind of alluded to before i think but the re-announcement of the same thing over and over again it's like is this new budget <laughs> is it oh mm -hmm. and like what are you getting for it um and i think like the public demanding that like they should know where their tax dollars are going right and and it's painted as like a oh we need to cap uh you know this growing budget that physicians are, are paid too much or something like that right when really there's there's a lot of inefficiencies in the system there's a lot of places where money is going duplication of services um but it's certainly not going to, to the foundation of the system right um that we keep talking about and so so where is it going what are we getting for it so i think public report cards um that don't place burden on providers that that can't deal with the system problems right it just we need to be able to show the parts of the system that are failing our burdens um, and so that we can keep our government accountable for what and how much they're funding um, and that's so that's something we said repeatedly at maps right where's the accountability on the government side to to fund the things that you're asking for and that was always kind of like met with a, oh, we don't need more accountability. <laughs> Just you. Not us. No, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what are yeah. your thoughts on the, you know, the new federal transfer payments uh, structure, which comes with the strings attached? It sounds like that's a step in the direction in terms of transparency and accountability. And where are these funds being allocated? What are they being used for? So I think, I mean, we know some of the strings. Uh, we don't know all of them. Um, as you said, Jordan, some of it is is information sharing. So, I mean, that that is positive if it if it's done in a meaningful way. Um, I think you know the 
the hard part is we don't know what that impact is going to be. Um, and, and part of what we were hoping for was to actually be able to help governments meet, the Alberta government in particular, meet its, um, its requirements when it comes to federal health transfers so that they could be applied in a way that would make a meaningful system change, um, but also that, that they could account for this without much extra work. Um, and that was kind of built into the LFP. So um, I, think, I think if we knew more about it, it would be great. Um, I think that would be the first place to start. And then the second would be that, you know, if we could if we could trust, as Sam said, that the the there's going to be transparency around how that funding is allocated, because um, we've we've had in the past few years we've had a number of commitments that haven't been delivered on, right? And and each one of those um, is is harmful for the trust and and belief that this is going to make a meaningful difference for for family medicine, which, as we said, affects recruitment, it affects retention of of family physicians, um, and at the end of the day, it affects Albertans. And so BC, they just signed their bilateral agreements. Things are moving along nicely there. Quebec doesn't really want anything to do with strings attached. Uh, what about here in Alberta? Is there anything that seems to be holding holding things up on our end? Or have you heard any whisperings about the actual movement of that? Well, I, you know, as far as I know, everybody has agreed to it except Quebec. And so it's just a matter of what is actually agreed to and and no that's like we're we haven't been privy to that information we've tried to you know we've asked the minister directly because in part we wanted to be able to de design the lfp and the stabilization plans in a way that would be mindful of that so to help them meet those requirements um and of course trying to ask for what what are the um opportunities, I guess, for, for budget allocation from that to this place of great need. Um, but, you know, I think it seemed like she wanted to talk about it maybe more and couldn't. So I think it's, it's you know, locked down on that end. And we'll hear alongside everybody else, I'm sure, instead of being part of the ability to, to shape it, right, from our vantage point in the system of, of being care coordinators, largely, right, and seeing cracks in so many places, it'd just be, I think, in overall, what we need in the system is the ability to work together more, right, not just task forces that are so formal and, and whatnot, right, but a, a meaningful ongoing dialogue and addressing problems together, because um, trying to do it through through largely administrative or bureaucratic uh, channels in government and, you know, an organization as big as AMA, it's slow, right? Same with AHS. Well, and then on the same topic of transparency and accountability, uh, you were probably involved in attending the AGM for the College of Family Physicians of Canada last week, correct? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, couldn't make the actual meeting, but yes, very involved in the discussions leading up to it, heard lots about it, and, and have our own opinions. I'm just going to go straight ahead and say, from a rural perspective, it, it it does it just blows my mind right like we so the srpc for instance like the uh society of rural physicians of canada came out against it very strongly and and the rationale behind that is that we know we're graduating very competent uh physicians who are ready to not just take on a practice but also emerge and and labor and delivery and and all of those areas in two years with rural programs and so it's not so much the time, but it's what, how the program's structured, the amount of sort of independence, uh, you know, safely, right? Independence with supervision, uh, exposure, right? Um, and, 
and really the confidence that you're putting into the the students you're graduating. And so to to say when it's working in two years in so many places that you need to change the whole curriculum, especially at a time where we have such a shortage, right? And and there is a decreasing or waning desire to go into this because of all the other things we talked about today. Um, it's just it, it's mind boggling. And so yeah, there was a very strong opposition to it, and I think that's just a piece of the rationale. Why do so many places have a three-year family medicine residency? What's the benefit? Like I see, I kind of see it from both sides. I'm like, okay, everything's on fire. We're in crisis. You know, if we have doctors graduating that are 50% smarter because they have a three-year instead of a two-year residency, would they be able to just be that much more efficient? You know, John, like, are you in your 15th year of residency now? Or like, I think that's the answer, right? It's like we're always yeah. learning and growing. It's, you can possibly do it in two. That's or that's three. always the thing, Jordan. Is it's I mean, you, you know, we one of the one of the great privileges of family medicine is you're always learning something, right? Like, um, you know, whether it's standards that are changing or presentations that are new for you, right? Um, there's there's always something new, um, and and I mean, like, I I always revel in the fact that that I am learning from my residents and students things that I didn't know, and that that my colleagues who are towards the end of their practice are still pulling me into the room to ask me questions about things that they don't know. Right. I think that's, that's one of the great beauties of family medicine is, is you're always learning something. Um, and so I guess the, to me, the question is, you know, does the, does the third year really equip you better to do that? Right. Like if you're, if you're already willing to learn, does it, does it really teach you a lot more and how can it be set up like that? And I think that's, that's part of what was missing is, um, I know there were comments made that, that this wouldn't create a, a gap year. It wouldn't create a, a loss of, um, of family doctors or, or a period of time where you have a, a refractory graduating class kind of thing. But, but at the same time, you kind of have to, right? Like there's gotta be a, um, either you need to double your residencies, um, so that you can graduate one, second, one after two and one after three years. And the big question is, who do you put those people with, right? How do you how do you find um, uh, people to learn from? How do you find supervisors and preceptors for for those residents, especially as we're seeing supports not exist? So, uh, from a practical standpoint, I, I just I think the the first step is you need to create the the landing pad. Um, you know, you need to build the the incentive structures that make people want to do this on an ongoing basis and support the people that are doing it so that they can train and support the people that are coming. And that's true for residents and it's true for teams. Um, and it's something that, that I think kind of speaks to where we feel we need to start, which is sustaining what we have. Is there anything that we need to be doing internally, you know, as just the the family doctors collectively in terms of system reform, you know, things that are within our power to start doing currently versus advocating and waiting on third parties and external agencies to change for us? Like, what, what should we be doing? Uh, is it pushing our practices towards that team-based care? Is it, I don't know, fill in the blank? I mean, the first word that came to mind it. for me was was less. Yeah, me too. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah I was boundaries. trying to think of a different Just, yeah. different way to say it, but you're right. Like I think it's like like John alluded to before. There's so many cracks in the system that we that we um, you know prevent or or hide really from the public view by the care, the lengths that we go to to provide good care. 
I like I hate to say it, but I think we do need to stop. We need to stop uh, like using ourselves as bridges across those gaps, right? Because that's why people are burning out, right? When they're not supported and they don't feel like they're even supported to have boundaries, right? Like, I mean, and I know I'm preaching to the choir slash converted here, but the, you know, like if you take a vacation, right? Or you take any time for yourself, if you're lucky enough to have coverage to do that, you come back and, and the overwhelming response from patients is, oh, like, it's so long to get into you, to see you, right? Or I can never get in to see you and I need to, or, you know, or you're greeted at the door with a pile of forms from your staff. And like, it's just, it's a overwhelming pressures from all areas. So there's, there's lots of ways that you can, you know, take a, a page, I think, out of the book of our specialist colleagues, right? Or, or others that have a bit more leniency to say like, no, actually I'm full, right? Or my waiting period for XYZ is this long. Um, you know, and that's again out of necessity for for access to ORs or whatever, right? If you know you're not going to be able to take care of the patient in the way that they need to be taken care of, then you have to say no. And that's where we're at, but we're just we feel like we can't say no. And so you have to need to say no to something. So maybe it's like <laughs> we've been we've been tossing around ideas about this for a long time, right? And it's just like, do you just say, do you have a, a forms wait list, right? Or just say, I'm not accepting forms for the next. You know, but and and how does the college support that? We've actually had these conversations with the registrar of the college um, to to say like we can't as a profession meet the guidelines in the system that we're in now, right? And so like, what can you do as the college, right, to support family physicians and to make sure that they are aware? Because that's another reason people drop out of the profession is because they are afraid of all of this liability um, that they're taking on in a system that they can't they can't achieve what they're supposed to do. And it's not like we don't want to. So there's lots of, I think there's lots of places where we can find like, what are your boundaries? And if you mm -hmm. set them, how would you be better able to take care of, of the people that you can in the best way that you can? And that might be saying, okay, we did six things today. We can't get through your other eight. <laughs> you know, like the lists have gotten so long. <laughs> Well, that's yeah. a good point, right? Like you're approaching a, I say you, I mean, we as a profession are approaching, you know, this long-term problem with a short-term solution of let's do more, let's burn ourselves out. Are we really doing our patients or the system a favor in general, right? You, you can only do that so long before you quit, you taper back, you cut down your hours, you do something else, right? So if it was a short-term demand you know, perhaps the argument there would be it's really got worse during covid right like okay let's all rally together there's increased burden right now but things have started chilling out a little bit but yet that sentiment of you know do more and that sense of duty to the patients is still very strong and things are just getting worse in terms of we've hit the end of the rope yeah and i think i think the longer we wait the the more difficult that is to recover right like um you know, we, we've, many of us have had friends of ours who have either decided to, to move out of, out of longitudinal family practice or who have moved out of the province, right? Because they're, um, they're recognizing that there are other places like BC where, um, you're at least seen for what you do and, and supported to, to do it. 
And I think that that's, that was our hope, right? Is it's still our hope is to see that happen. And that's, that's going to start with number one, um, demonstrating that there is a problem, um, because we hear the word crisis, but we're responding to this very, very, very slowly, if at all. And, and number two, um, you know, how do we, how do we fix it? And that starts in our communities that starts with people speaking up, uh, for what they need. And that's hard to do, right? Cause a lot of us are already so stretched thin that, that we've kind of, we barely have the energy to lift our heads up and ask for help. Um, and, and we need to create that space. And that's why I say, like, I think we, we have to start by, by saying no to things. We have to start by doing less so that we can do more, um, to, to look out for what we need. But also saying why, right? Yeah. I think that's like one of my best mentors, um, you know, that her approach really was, um, you know, I'm going to say no to you right now so that I can be here for you in a year. Um, and that's, and like, you can take that at face value, right? You can be angry or upset that we're not covering this today, but like recognize I'm at, I'm telling you what I need so that I can still be here for you, um, you know, years from now. And I think, like, unless we're honest about that, I think a lot of people in medicine put on a brave face, right? Or they don't want to show that, that things aren't going well. But what good is it to patients or the province if you just burn out and leave? Or, or you know, make your exit plan to, to a place where you feel seen or heard or valued for what you do, like John was, was saying. I feel like we're doing a lot of free advertising for BC. Um, but, but it's true. It's like we should talk about it because they've done something good and they're drawing in family docs, not just from Alberta, but they're keeping their own grads and they're, they're pulling them in from other areas of the system back into primary care. And that's what we want to see. So, I mean, kudos to them. And hopefully we can do, you know, an even better job here right because we had a leg up i think to begin with um but yeah i think we we need to be honest about about what's happening and there's a lot of places where that like we didn't even talk about connect care but we call it disconnect care for a reason right and, and referral pathways that are being done like alberta surgical initiative there's a lot of things that are that end up uh, adding to the workload of family physicians for no for further re remuneration and it obviously wasn't designed with the medical home or, or primary care perspective in mind. And it should be if we, I like to think of it as just simply the message is flip the system, right? Like put the time, the effort, the, the remuneration, whatnot into where 70 or whatever percent of the care is happening in the community. That includes our specialist colleagues who, who are very underpaid in the community as well. Um, and, and in forging those connections and integration there, instead of making a AHS based, you know, system that it's great if you're in AHS, pretty awful if you're outside of it and you're getting like the same thing 18 times and, you know, it's just increasing to your, your workload and you don't get the stuff that you, you need to get on your patients. You have to attract down elsewhere. Um, and it's costing the system a whole lot, right? But like these things, you would just think that you would plan in advance to have them integrated in the place where the majority of care happens, right? And, and patients don't know this because they're told that it's, it's great. And, and so if, we just need to have those conversations, honestly, like you're doing. So thank you. We try. We try. <laughs> uh, I mean, kind of getting over time here. I don't want to, I want to be respectful of your Sunday afternoon. Uh, do you have any other thoughts, any like final wrap up comments or call outs, things you want to throw in there? Oh, I just, I echo Sam Jordan. Thank you for doing this. 
Um, you know, for, for a while, Sam and I actually uh, worked with another colleague of ours, a urologist, Howard Evans, who uh, ha ha we had a podcast where we talked about how if we didn't change something, this was going to hurt. Um, and uh, our, our hope was to get the message out in advance so that, you know, we're, we're all about prevention in family medicine and, <laughs> and we were hoping to prevent, um, you know, inevitable harms. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, with, without a response, we're going to see, we're going to see more um, more of the same. And, and I think, you know, Alberta has a huge capacity to be a leader in, in healthcare and in primary care. Um, as Sam alluded to, we are set up with very, very good structures if we are willing to invest in them and, and leverage their abilities, um, to, to push us in the right direction and to make Alberta the place that, that family doctors want to work and, and where patients are well looked after. Um, and, and I think until we recognize and commit to that, we're we're going to unfortunately see um, a degradation in in primary care, which is really is the foundation of the healthcare system. So this is a crossroads, um, and and hopefully someone is listening, and and many of us continue to speak up. Yeah, well, I'll say thank you for your work, you know, and the advocacy and everything that you have done and will do for the primary care system here in Alberta. And I myself am very fortunate to be in a position where I can do things like this and have these conversations and get the message out there. And so, you know, I think there is a lot going on for Alberta here. It's a fantastic place to live with a lot of wonderful communities. And hopefully, you know, by the collective efforts here, we can help tidy up and keep the system running well and make it a great place for everybody. So I don't know, kind of, unless Sam sort of jump in there and then we can end it. Sure. Yeah. I just, you just made me think of like one of my favorite sayings is that good ideas don't have titles and, and in going around talking to people in the province, like medical or non like this, like the problems are complex, but the solutions aren't and they don't have to be. And people get it like when you talk to them and they have great ideas and that's not, you know, it doesn't have to be one or two people in a room shouldering the burden, right? It, we just need to listen to the people on the ground doing it or listen to people from other industries who could do it better, right? Or have experience from other industries and, and learn from that. And so I, I do encourage everybody, medical or not, to put their opinion out there. There's been some of the best um, ideas and um, just pathways forward that I've heard have come from like municipal leaders or engaged citizens in their communities. The fool does not learn from his mistakes, whereas the wise man does. Yet the even wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. Ooh, Thank I you so it. much to both nice. of you for joining us today. <laughs> we'll end it there. That was prophetic. Thank you yeah. so much again for joining us. Mm -hmm.